welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring a special Q&A from our recent screening of S.S. Rajamuli's RRR with composer M.M. Kiravani, who recently won an Academy Award for Best Original Song for Natu Natu. But first, listen to a programmer's preview of our upcoming series, Unspeakable, the films of Todd Browning, which kicks off tomorrow and runs through March 26th with FLC programmers Maddie Whittle and Tyler Wilson. Explore the lineup and get tickets at filmlink.org slash browning. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Tyler Wilson. I'm a programmer at Film at Lincoln Center. And uh, today I'm joined by... I'm Maddie Whittle. I am assistant programmer at Film at Lincoln Center. Uh, and we're um, we're both here to give you a, a, uh, all a preview of our upcoming retrospective called uh, Unspeakable, the films of Todd Browning, uh, which begins March 17th and runs through March 26th in our Walter Reed Theater. Maybe before we get into Todd Browning and these specific films, we can uh, maybe start by giving some broad overview details and highlights um, that the, ser- the series has in store for you. Um, we're showing 17 films that span 20 years of Browning's career, uh, beginning with 1919's The Equisite Thief uh, and running through to his sound films with the final film that he directed, uh, Miracles for Sale from 1939. Among the 17, two technically survive as incomplete films, uh, which, I think points to I think an important factor uh, when talking about Browning's legacy and you know contextualizing his work today, which is that a number of his silent films are lost or partially lost, and I think even those that can be found today, and I think whether they're silent or sound films, uh, can be a little difficult to see in any decent quality format. Um, so I think this series uh, offers a really rare opportunity to see a good many of his films on 35 millimeter prints uh, and many of those prints are coming from uh, both domestic and international archives so um, don't sleep on this opportunity we also have uh, to sweeten the deal really good fairly priced all access passes um, we have an all access pass for the general public priced at 79 dollars uh, and a student all access pass for uh, 39 dollars so um, I don't know, fire up those EDU accounts. Uh, a steal. But in addition to the the you know the the analog, the, analog, the, the prints that we're going to be showing the series also includes a couple uh, stunning restorations, uh, including a new restoration of the Unknown, which is arguably Browning's most uh, accomplished film of the silent period, which has been restored um, by the George Eastman Museum to essentially its full length. Yeah, prior prior to this, uh, th- this restoration premiered last year, um, and and prior to then, uh, I think the only known version was roughly fifty or so minutes long. So I think even those of you who are familiar with this film, um, we are presenting it in a format that has been shown only a few times uh, so far. I guess to get into Browning himself, or maybe to kind of give you an overall picture of his his body of work, I think it, it, many people might know or you know realize just by looking through his filmography that a good many of his features are set in you know the world of of the circus or the sideshow and um i think even those that aren't they tend to um focus on outsider figures um that that ranges from you know criminals uh vampires 
mad scientists, uh, obsessives, uh, and also the you know the the abnormal, uh, physical and and otherwise. And that I think you know related to that last part, I think time and again, uh, his films are really consciously obscuring the space between what is normal and you know what is not normal. And I think that is one of the reasons he remains like such a I think a fascinating and provocative figure today. I don't know. It, it's very easy to see why he's considered a cult figure because I think his films regularly question how culture defines itself. Um, and he's often I think, doing that by like pushing narrative and character psychology, I think, to their extremes. Just to, to build on that, I, I think that Todd Browning was fascinated to the point of obsession with life on the margins. And I think in many ways you can understand the through line from that to his stature as truly one of the great classical cult filmmakers uh, who was both within the system and also emblematic of the margins. And I think I think so much of, of that him being a kind of him embodying like kind of like outsider ethos is that, you know, much of the work is a reflection of, of what he knew and like what he was, yeah, as, as many as you're saying, like what he was like, what his like career long obsessions were. I mean, he was actually a guy who ran away from home and joined the circus. Um, or at least that's like the biographical narrative that that he embraced. I think, you know, he was also this like famously reclusive filmmaker that gave very few interviews. And so I think details of his life were easy to mythologize. And I think that was kind of, even more appealing to him as someone who came from like the world of like the carnival. But yeah, after, you know, his time, you know, working like a, a string of different kinds of jobs, the circus, he turned to the vaudeville circuit and then he began acting in films and then finally found a more like stable career as like a writer and, and director. So we want to give you a little bit of an overview of the, the specific films in the lineup. And uh, it's worth remembering, as with any retrospective, that uh, part of the sort of joy of, of coming together with this collection of films is to be able to trace the trajectories, the, the thematic uh, and, and psychological preoccupations that drove Todd Browning's art over the course of this 20-year period of his career. Um, and so I would start, uh, if you're new to Browning, if you're completely uh unfamiliar with his work or maybe only vaguely familiar with uh with the the entire breadth of his filmography uh you may already be familiar with some of his most known films including dracula which really is the film that kicked off uh universal studios original horror cycle of films which really defined that studio's identity uh in the years immediately after the transition from silent to sound filmmaking uh, and you may have seen Dracula starring Bela Lugosi. It's it's truly a pillar of the horror genre uh, and and informed all subsequent depictions of the character of Dracula, uh, whether drawn directly from Bram Stoker's novel or spun off in any number of, of contexts. Um, so in addition to that, you might also be familiar with Freaks, which is another of his uh, truly um, iconic titles. Uh, that is set in the world of carnies in the world of of sort of the sideshow of uh, of this circus milieu that he was so taken with as a subject. And then from there, uh, you can 
expand and begin to look at some of his films that might be lesser known. Um, I would want to highlight just looking at this series uh, as a whole that uh, many of the selections that we're screening are silent films and we're really excited to be able to show them with live accompaniment, which is a, a special way to, to get in touch with the way in which these films were originally exhibited with a pianist or, or some kind of accompanist uh, in the theater with the projection. And we're happy to have Donald Sosin, who we've worked with number of times on on silent film exhibitions. I guess on the topic of maybe like Browning's more well-known works, I'll like point to, um, which I've kind of already mentioned earlier, um, maybe his most famous film of the silent, his silent period, The Unknown from 1927. It is, it's, you know, it's widely considered, you know, maybe his silent film masterpiece and certainly one of like the premier works of the silent period. Um, it is one of um, one of the many collaborations he, he had with Lon Chaney, who stars as a supposedly uh, armless precision knife thrower and sharpshooter who is uh, secretly in love with his you know assistant. But of course, she just so happens to be possessed by a, a phobia of men's upper extremities. Um, that's really just the setup of this film. It goes uh, to extremely deranged places. It is, I think, one of uh, one of Cheney's greatest and, and most physical performances in a Browning film. I think that, you know, there are many sequences of him doing very impressive uh, footwork. You'll, you can see him smoking cigarettes, drinking drinks, and doing many, like, everyday things just with his feet. Um, but it's like the unknown is, you know, it's at it's it's funny at times, but it's also you know deeply disturbing and will very likely make your skin crawl. But I I I'm, I bring it up because I would say for those of you who have maybe never seen the Todd Browning film, or maybe only know Dracula or Freaks, I would say this is a, a like an incredible film to start with. Um, I think it will absolutely hook you on to the rest of his his films. Um, it is I think as strange and haunting today as it was like uh, nearly a hundred years ago. I would also highlight a, a kind of predecessor to The Unknown, uh, The Blackbird, which is the film Browning made right before The Unknown. And I think it shares a lot in common with that film. It is once again starring Lon Chaney um, and he's pulling double duty in two roles. Um, and it's not the first time uh, he's doing that in a in a Chaney film, but or in a Browning film, pardon me. Um, he plays the... Uh, the titular criminal who is a thief and he is, you know, vying for the affections of this music hall puppeteer and his other life is this physically disabled, uh, no, uh, kind of noble, more noble twin brother uh, known as the Bishop of Limehouse who covers up for, you know, the Blackbird's crimes by yet using like a charity operation. And uh, obviously he's like faking this, this disability as a kind of elaborate front to hide, you know, his, you know, quote unquote brother's crimes. Um, there's also this, this other figure in the film known as like West End Birdie, who is also leading a double life, uh, both as like a wealthy, well-respected gentleman and a thief, you know, much like, you know, Cheney's character. And he is also in love with this same music hall puppeteer. Uh, so, so here you, you have another kind of love triangle play out in the same way that um, 
is kind of unfolding with the unknown. It is, yeah, it's a very evident precursor, as I said, to the, like the unknown. You know, he Browning is playing with illusion versus reality. This film shows like some of Browning's like strangest scenes where you have these like very quick change uh, transformations from Cheney that like I think certainly inspired uh, films like like Psycho. I think many people will think of that film while watching The Blackbird. Um, and of course, it also ends in this bizarrely, very perversely ironic uh, conclusion that you might see coming, but I think will uh, surprise you either way just by how it happens. Um, so I think, yes, if you perhaps see the unknown and want something along a similar thread, I would highly recommend The Blackbird. And I will just uh, take the opportunity to use Lon Chaney as a segue uh, to talk about a pair of films that are worth seeking out just as a as a special opportunity to chart the course of Browning's work. One of the genres that he's probably less widely associated with among sort of a, a, a lay audience is the crime melodrama. Within all the contexts that we've already been discussing, he had a real interest in uh, these sort of morality play narratives in which a character is caught up in sort of a, a a web of criminal forces and ultimately needs to reckon with their own uh, sort of ethical implication within those activities. Uh, the film I want to start by highlighting is the 1920 version of Outside the Law, which starred Lon Chaney. Browning and Chaney had a long-standing collaborative relationship. This film was Browning's second project with Lon Chaney and was conceived uh, with Priscilla Dean, the female star of the film in mind. Uh, but it is a fascinating film to compare to another film that Browning made 10 years later, also called Outside the Law, which was a remake of this film. The 1920 version is silent. The 1930 version is a sound film and stars Edward G. Robinson in the Cheney role. And the films don't have identical narratives. There are uh, significant changes to the storyline and sort of the focus of this crime saga as it is depicted in the silent and the sound version. But it's fascinating to compare the two films both as a way of seeing how Cheney's sound films built on the legacy of his silent films, but also comparing the performance of Edward G. Robinson, who at the time was new and, and basically unknown as an actor. He had not yet broken out with his role in Little Caesar. Uh, but to compare his performance with Cheney's, I think, gives a real striking sense of how Browning worked with actors uh, across these different modes of production. And I think one of the luxuries of seeing the films in a retrospective context is to be able to draw through lines between those films um, in, a, in a very immediate and present way. And I would, I would just add that um, the 1930 version of Outside the Law is, you know, one of those Browning films that is extremely difficult to come by. As far as I know, like it might just exist on like an out of print DVD that you can get used, but yeah, it's like, you, you can't really, you can't stream this film, um, nor can you really, you know, easily purchase it. So uh, again, a rare opportunity to see this film on the big screen on a 35 millimeter print. 
Well, um, that is just a, a sampling of what this series has in store. Uh, a reminder, we're showing 17 films beginning March 17th and concluding on March 26th in our Walter Reed Theater. We will have live accompaniment by Donald Susan uh, for at least one screening of each of the silent films. Uh, so this will really be uh, a fun and rare opportunity to see these films in a theater. And so uh, we hope to see you there because Maddie and I certainly had a lot of fun putting this, this program together and we are excited to share it with, with you all. And we're excited to enjoy the films with an audience in a dark room projected uh, in 35 millimeter, in many cases. Always a dark room, though. Yeah, that's right. That's important. Original story by V. Vijayendra Prasad, the historical action epic RRR, short for Rise, Roar, Revolt, follows the fictionalized paths of real-life freedom fighters Aluri Sitarama Raju and Komaram Bhim as they come together in 1920s Delhi to battle the nefarious British Raj for the rescue of a kidnapped girl from Bhim's tribe. Enjoy Academy Award-winning composer M.M. Kiravani's conversation on working on the film's score, his musical influence, and more. My name is Talara Harms. I'm the Features Editor at Playbill, and I'm here to talk with the composer of RRR, M.M. Kiravani. <laughs> I've been told we can refer to him as M.M.K., which... I think I also saw something online that was like DJ Cream. Did I, okay, I might be making that up. It was MM. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. I'm very happy that uh, you're I mean, enjoying this movie. Um, Thank you so much. It's so fun. It is so fun. So before we get too much into it, um, Congratulations on your Oscar nomination. This is thank you very much. Thank you so much. Means a lot. Thank you very much. Specifically for the song Natu Natu, um, which was the big, the big dance battle scene at the beginning of the movie. It is the first Indian production um, ever nominated for an original original song. So that's also super exciting. Thank you. And the film itself, the film itself is doing super well on the awards circuit, all kinds of international film awards and um, composition awards for MMK. So let's, let's get into it. Let's talk about scoring a film, especially a huge one like this. I think what's so, what's so fascinating is how much storytelling you do do in the score. Um, can you talk about what the process was, where, where in the, where in the process did you come in? How much of the script and how much of the movie did you have before you started telling the story with music? Yeah, uh, well, uh, I've been working with this director, Rajamoli, who happens to be my cousin also. So <laughs> we had a very big, uh, good rapport before both of us entered into the movie industry. So with that rapport, uh, we used to gain lots of uh, time uh, that normally will take for um, communicating with each other and understanding. So, uh, so you already uh, have a short name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his movies uh, deal with 
characters are larger than life and situations larger than life and uh, when uh, giving uh, um, score for those movies uh, it's uh, it it's a challenging task one after the other because uh, uh, I'll, i'll be giving my best for his action movie uh, i mean his is uh, this is 12th movie uh, rrr is his 12th movie so after after giving every uh, my best in terms of action oriented scenes uh, again he he resorts to the same genre and he comes up with the same kind of larger than life uh, characters movie so what i am left with uh, uh, to do uh, i use i must have used all the instruments all the techniques i i knew when i keep striving uh, to get with more ideas to i mean come up with something innovative and something new and something unheard so in this movie rrr i resorted to konakol uh, that's uh, konakol is a uh, art of uh, um, saying uh, a rap kind of uh, uh, some gibberish uh, uh, it's not gibberish actually there is a science there is a um, i mean grammar to it so they say it while dancing uh, it's like tanaranagguna tanamranagguna tanamranag those are those things are used for normally for dancing but i uh, chose them to use uh, for action scenes where ram is doing his exercise and lots of emotional uh, scenes so that gives uh, i mean a hybrid effect i mean so to try different combinations using uh, for different emotions so i i try to uh, do mostly uh, experiments with those kind of things in this uh, particular movie scoring And we were also talking earlier about um kind of how influenced I think you are by by poetry. And I think that's also very apparent in this as well. So much of the score has a lot of under singing. I don't know what I'm trying to say there that there's there's just a there's a lot of singing going on underneath. Yeah. I, I am a well. lyricist by myself. I I like poetry also. I I myself wrote this song the background song where uh, it is played uh, in the his i mean in the back the uh, flashback story of the ram's father the, the song is janani that song was written by me so that's my favorite song and not an, yeah thank and you it, thank you very and much per- and performed by you on the soundtrack as well you pardon me and performed by you on yeah, the soundtrack yeah that was performed well. by me and natanatu is written by mr chandra bose he is my a very good friend and he is associated with me for the past 28 years so he wrote uh, a lyrics and he has also nominated for oscars for the right. song yeah um let's talk about natanatu um i like i said before i'm with playbill so a story song is right up my alley and I, as far as i'm concerned you can't have enough dance battles in a movie <laughs> um where where you knew the scene and you wrote how many versions of the song did you give yeah uh, actually not not to was the first version we uh, mr chandrabos and myself we came up with and the director was not sure of having the song and so he asked us to uh, come up with more uh, options more i mean variety of options so we did uh, uh, more, more than 15 to 20 we lost the count <laughs> so but he was not happy but then it took it spread over the period of 2 years because of the pandemic also 
so finally uh, my son uh, my elder son he is a musician too uh, he took the song and he just uh, gave some additional programming for the song uh, where the uh, the beat goes high in the end the same first tune and then it was liked by everybody and then finally uh, he saved me he said my my position so the, that's how not not to became the final version <laughs> the first yeah. back to the yeah final. the back to <laughs> first version um we were talking a lot about the differences between um, Indian music and Western music. And MMK was telling me that Nati Natu specifically is in 6-8, which, which Western music uses sometimes, but not a lot. But you were saying probably 80 to 90% of Indian music is in, in that time signature? Not 80%, but uh, more than 60%. More than 60%. Uh, yeah, Indian songs are uh, composed in the 6-8 time signature. In, in Western music, it is uh, the slower version of six eight is waltz. Is a waltz. Yeah. So da da da, and then we go da 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 Can we talk a little bit about the instruments that you used for the orchestration in Natu Natu? Natu Natu is mostly percussion oriented song where I, I use lots of duffs and uh, uh, timpanis and all all kinds of percussion instruments to get the groove and bare minimum uh, melodic instruments. Mostly it's about energy and stamina. So I resorted to complete rhythms. And then you speed it up 20? Yeah, towards the end, yeah. It has, it's RPM like a race, 20, 20 points. Yeah. So um, was the film also sped up or were they super fast dancing? <laughs> and I mean, have you, have you guys seen people try to recreate this on TikTok? It's insane. Um, I didn't last past the first I cannot even dream about doing it <laughs> I do want to also kind of talk about I, I we nerded out a little bit backstage about lyrics as well which which MMK did not write the lyrics for this but he is a poet and he is a lyricist himself so he's sort of explaining rhyme scheme to me in western musicals we tend to focus on an end rhyme to help the audience along with storytelling. In Indian lyric, there is a, a beginning rhyme and a second letter rhyme. Second letter, yeah. Which, is, which is, can you, can you say in Telugu the first, the first few lines again of... Yeah, it, like in this, the last song we just heard, Netturu Marigite Yettara Janda. Netturu, two is the second letter. Sattuva Burimite Kottara Konda. Sattuva again, again second letter is rhyming. So in, in Indian lyrics, we, we care about uh, the second letter rhyming mostly and most of the times uh, uh, beginning letter and the end of the sentence like in English poetry. Like English. So yeah. we, are, we are too Pretty particular right. about rhyming, yeah. <laughs> because the, the rhymes make the, uh, the lyric sound uh, like a rhythm. So there will be inbuilt rhythm in the lyric. It, it will be easy for the composer to provide music for the lyric. That's how it goes. I still, I can't even still, and of course I was, I was looking at it in um, Telugu, and because if you put, put in the English words, you don't get the rhymes where they should be. So I was trying to match letters, and this perfectly curly Q round, we were talking about the, yeah. the, uh, uh, let me, we were getting uh, nerdy. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, let me say, add something here. Uh, in in, uh, in Telugu, uh, my own language, we never had a dictionary. Uh, it's very, I mean, uh, uh, amazing that 
uh, in the british rule uh, lord uh, brown uh, he first uh, he did a lot in, uh, he took lot of care uh, and time to uh, research on telugu language and he made the first ever telugu language dictionary which is available now uh, everywhere the all the credit goes to uh, uh, lord brown who who belongs to i mean uh, london uh, see that's the uh, that's the heritage, heritage and that's all the benefits we got forget all the other things like infrastructure and all but speaking about language thanks to him that we have got a dictionary now and we have got dictionaries for rhyming words also <laughs> these these days everything became very easy with, yeah. with the computers but uh, brown must be a lord brown must be given due credit uh, he is very great I mean, he was very great so tell me just as we sort of kind of wrap up what um what's really special you spoke a little bit about johnery but what what was special to you for this film yeah this film like any other uh, my uh, rajamouli's movies uh, it's a uh, it's a package of emotions action scenes and uh, intricately designed with uh, physics uh, so but this is a movie uh, that the, the, for the first time it is uh, bagging all the critical applause from the west which is very exciting and never before experience for me yeah. and i'm very happy and very excited to share this uh, happiness uh, with my family and my with my all the my country yeah, yeah this is very exciting this means a lot and in india in india we are rich in culture but when it comes to uh, appreciating uh, the arts and uh, appreciating others works nothing can beat the west uh. no, let me share my experience uh, i had in bulgaria in sofia i had attended to a, a western classical concert and each and every piece uh, they were performing for 5 minutes or 6 minutes like that and uh, the audience were clapping for Three minutes, at least half of the performance. <laughs> so I, I was wondering, what is this? Oh my God! So we just clap for ten uh, seconds. But that kind of appreciation, that appreciation was mind blowing and unimaginable. So that's the value uh, that an artist uh, is given uh, from the West. Now I can experience uh, an first hand experience with this movie, and I'm very happy for that, and I'm very proud for that. Uh, uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have You still have a, like another 3 3 weeks, 2 months award season and press circuit ahead of you. That's right. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank and you. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks thank you for much. I I think Thank you very much. entertaining us, making our lives all just a little bit better tonight. Thank you for the, all the appreciation and <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the joy. Thanks